This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 2, The Heritage of the Enlightenment. Okay, today is the first of two very broad overview lectures, and the only two really broad overview lectures you get in this class. Right, this is weird and echoey, so let me see if I can turn the, this down. Maybe it's less weird and echoey now. Um, we're going to go over all of Enlightenment, and then we're going to go over Romanticism. So I'll, it will be much more sweeping than most of the lectures I'm going to give you. And I'm going to throw out today a lot of ideas that you will just kind of get a hint of, but you won't kind of master in the course of my going through them very quickly. But there are things I want to kind of throw out because I will keep coming back to them. And often when you deal with the abstract and philosophy and these kind of theoretical things, I found that it's kind of like good coffee. It has to percolate. It's not like a kind of concrete object that you pick it up and you have it and it's in your pocket. You've got to kind of put stuff in your head and live with them for a while and just kind of let the ideas percolate there for a while. So don't panic if you feel like it was too fast and you didn't quite get what Kant meant about the Copernican revolution because I'll keep kind of coming back to these things because we're it's a history of conversations and of interlocking conversations. So the hardest thing is to find a place to get started because you don't know what the vocabulary is and you don't know what the topics are. Um, so just, just try to go with it. The other thing I'm going to constantly do in this course is I'm going to draw your attention to key words. Some of those words are going to be big fancy words in foreign languages that you'll need to use your handout to figure out how to spell. Like when we talk about Hegel, we'll talk about Althebel. Some of them are words that seem like they're words that you use in your everyday life and why am I spending time talking about a word that everybody knows what it means anyway? And that's because there are words that are kind of keys to unlocking certain parts of conversations. And today we're going to talk about the Enlightenment, and the key word for Enlightenment is reason. Now, I know you already know what reason is. It's not a very fancy word, but there's going to be a kind of fetishization almost of reason, an obsession with reason, a kind of continual going back to reason, almost as if reason were playing the role of God. Um, so when you see words on your handout, and some of them are big and new, and some of them seem very banal, you know, that's because I'm trying to draw your attention to certain kinds of themes. So we talk about the Enlightenment, we're talking about a period of time to some extent, um, where it called different things in different languages. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the age of reason, basically late 17th, 18th century culminating in the French Revolution. Um, in German, they say Aufklärung. Um, in French, my French accent is terrible, so I'm going to try to avoid saying words in French, although there'll be lots of them on their handouts. Um, this kind of the age of light. Um, it's a phase in the intellectual history of Europe. Um, and there's going to be a lot of new concepts coming, one of which will be civilization. Um, and you'll see right away that there's a very European-centric notion of civilization. When these Enlightenment philosophers are going to talk about civilization or world civilization, they don't really mean the world. They really mean Europe. 
And they don't really mean all of Europe. They really mean France. They don't really mean all of France. <laughs> they really mean Paris. <laughs> and they don't really mean all of Paris. You know, really they mean, you know, a certain cafe frequented by, you know, a handful of intellectuals. Um, so take it all with a grain of salt. Um, that's going to come up again and again and again with philosophers. There's this aspiration towards the universal, and that's often going to come into conflict with something that is extremely particular. That's the condition of life. I mean, and that kind of the tension between the aspiration and the reality, the hypocrisy of certain ideas, that keeps coming back again and again. Um, enlightenment is, in some sense, a loose term for philosophies that, in various ways, come into contradiction with one another, and we'll see that more when we talk about romanticism. Um, it's about posing questions of man's relationship to himself, to one another, to government, to nature. And I'm going to try not to be 21st century politically correct and say men and women here because in fact that would be historically inaccurate. It takes a while before women get the same human status um, that men do. They're really still thinking about men. Um, okay. Um, the key moment in enlightenment or the key move is the exaltation of reason. Um, the overview is that it's a moment when God is going to be moved to the side. Not yet killed off. Nobody is yet killing off God. That's nobody is ready to do that. That takes another century. We don't get to the killing off of God until Nietzsche and Dostoevsky in the 1880s. You know, now we're like a century, a century and a half behind that. But what we're going to do in enlightenment is we're going to demote God. God is going to go from playing the central role, you know, to kind of playing more of a minor role behind the scenes. Um, you know, God is going to kind of retreat. He's still there. No one's done anything terrible to him. But he's going to retreat. And something has to move into that space. And what is moving into that space is reason. Um, and the mood of enlightenment, and I'm often going to talk about mood. Mood is kind of a big thing with these various philosophical movements. The mood of enlightenment is the rejoicing in reason, the worship of reason, the kind of exaltation of reason, the faith in reason, and the faith particularly in human reason. Um, my, my kids are extremely critical when I talk about this because they say I'm a speciesist, you know, and that my lectures never give enough attention to animals. You know, and why are we always privileging humans and not animals? Um, but alas, this is a situation in which um, some people were thinking about animals, but most people were thinking about humans and what is special about humans. It's a very human-centered. What is special about us is we have reason. Um, the general move is going to be that because we have reason, we can understand the world. Not all of it today, but progressively over time, we can understand more and more about the world. Because we can use our reason to understand the world, we can use our reason then to shape it, to make it better to make it work for us more efficiently. So you see already the implication of this for time, 
which is very critical. We talk about this shift to modernity, this shift from a cyclical notion of time to a forward-going notion of time. Because the move in enlightenment is to say that we can progressively understand more and more. The model of all enlightenment philosophy is the hard sciences. In some ways, it's an attempt to understand human beings, human life, human society, the way physicists and astronomers and chemists understand the natural world. That's going to be the normative model. And what you have in the hard sciences is a kind of clear teleology of progress, the standing of, on the shoulders of giants theme, the sense that each new jump in our knowledge and understanding comes as a result of building on the knowledge and understanding of what happened beforehand. So it's progressive. You're always moving forward. Um, Isaiah Berlin likes to talk about the, the metaphor of, of a jigsaw puzzle. So the world is a very complex jigsaw puzzle. We don't have all the pieces in place yet. But every time you put another piece in that moves you forward, that moves you closer to the whole, and the more pieces you fill in, the easier it gets to fill in the next pieces. So the idea that the world is a big puzzle, we haven't put all the pieces together yet, but eventually we will. And we're going steadily in that direction because you're constantly putting in new pieces. Um, so this faith in reason, in our ability to use our reason to understand the world, is going to kind of come into the dominant place that had been played by Christianity. And again, we're not killing off God, we're not killing off Christianity, but there is something happening that, that Max Weber is going to call, the German sociologist will describe, and he, he's, he's a 19th, 20th century figure, he's not a 18th century figure, but he will later talk about Entsauberung disenchantment, that the Enlightenment was a time of the disenchantment of the world. Um, and by disenchantment, he means that the sense that there are miracles, there are forces that can never be grasped by human beings, that there are mythical creatures, that there's another side, that there's, there are gods, or at least a god, that's going away. That sense that there's a magic that human beings don't have access to, that's going away. So the Enlightenment is about disenchantment. There's a kind of sobriety to it. So you can already see how this can work two ways. It can kind of be a happy thing. It can kind of be a sad thing. The mood of the Enlightenment philosophers was to rejoice in this disenchantment, to rejoice in reason. But you'll see when we get to romanticism that a lot of people are going to find it quite disappointing, this whole idea of disenchantment. Um, OK. The, we're going to talk a lot about rationality, rationalism. We're going to talk about empiricism. Um, and empiricism just refers to the idea that knowledge can be gained by sensory experience and observation. So Sir Isaac Newton, for instance, um, was an important precursor to the more philosophical enlightenment. The idea that laws of physics, laws of gravity, laws of motion, they can be learned, they can be discovered through careful observation and experimentation. You know, you collect data. You observe what is actually concretely happening in the world. You analyze that data. So there's a sobriety to it. 
there's a kind of there's a mood. Um, positivism is then going to come out of empiricism as a way of understanding the world in accordance with empirical observation, with no enchantment, no supernatural forces, you know, nothing kind of touchy-feely, nothing metaphysical coming into existence. Okay, I'm going to start with the 17th century precursors here, and in particular, I'm going to start with Descartes um, in epistemology, and I will. I want to start with Descartes because, in a certain sense, modern philosophy starts with Descartes. Um, when we get to Husserl, you'll see that Husserl loved Descartes. Um, full disclosure, Descartes is not my favorite. Um, but he's not my favorite writer. He's not my favorite philosopher. But there's, there's something very important that happens with Descartes. And his idea is that I am going to start from absolute zero. I am going to accept nothing. I'm going to assume that I know nothing, that we don't know that anything is true or anything is real. I'm going to clear my whole mind, accept nothing a priori, and see where I can start. See where I can find a solid foundation to ground knowledge on. And we talk about Descartes, it's the beginning in some sense of modern philosophy as being preoccupied first and foremost with epistemology. Epistemology refers to the study of knowledge, questions about knowledge. How do we know anything? How do we know the world is real? How do we know it exists? I'll keep coming back to these things. Like, how do I know, how do I know this bottle is real and it's not just a projection of my consciousness? How can I go from inside to outside, from inside my head to outside my head, from consciousness to being, from mind to world, from inner to outer, from imminent to transcendent? They're all just different ways of basically asking that same question. You know, how do I really know what is real? Um, so the legacy of Descartes was to begin this thought experiment with radical doubt and say, I am going to accept nothing that has not been incontrovertibly proven. Um, and his, he, he says to reject as being absolutely false everything in which I could not suppose the slightest reason for doubt in order to see if there did not remain after that anything in my belief which was entirely indutable. In his meditations, um, it's, it's a short book. I, I didn't assign it for this class, but you can all, are all, of course, welcome to read it. He says, to undertake seriously once in my life to rid myself of all the opinions I had adopted up to then and to begin afresh from the foundations. I shall apply myself seriously and freely to the general destruction of all my former opinions. I must avoid believing things which are not entirely certain and indubitable. So how can I find an absolute solid foundation on which to start, on which to build knowledge? Well, you have thoughts in your head. You know, I think I see this microphone now. Well, how do I know it's really there? How do I know what I see or what I think I see is real? How do I know there's any correspondence? Well, if you believe in God, you say God would not deceive me. Um, but what if there's an evil demon instead of God trying to deceive you? 
You can't know that the contents of your thoughts actually correspond with reality. And Descartes said, okay, so what can I be certain of sitting by myself in this room trying to figure out what can I be absolutely certain of? What can I absolutely prove to myself? And he comes up with, I can't be certain of the veracity of my thoughts. Maybe they were put there by an evil demon. Um, I can't be certain they correspond to reality, but I can be certain that I am having these thoughts. Therefore, I must exist. This is the famous cogito ergo sum, which is a phrase you should all learn, um, the fancy phrase in Latin. It will come up again and again and again. It just means I think, therefore I am. What I can be sure of is that I exist. And this idea of you can doubt everything except subjectivity, except the I, will run through all of modern thought as, as an important point. Everything else can be doubted, but not the existence of the I. Concito ergo sum. Okay. All right. In, in the end, you know, Descartes kind of cheats by bringing back in God and giving himself back the whole world. I find his proof for God extremely unconvincing, but we won't talk about that today. What I, what I want you to know today is cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, which is going to become the grounding point in the beginning of, of modern philosophy. Okay, um, so in terms of precursors to the 18th century enlightenment, we've got Descartes, we've got Isaac Newton with his legacy of empirical observation. You figure out how the world works, you figure out how the laws of gravity work, you know, by observing certain things and collecting data. Um, then we're gonna go to Thomas Hobbes, who is kind of the, the 17th century forerunner of social contract theory, which is the more political philosophy part of enlightenment. Thomas Hobbes wrote this very long book called The Leviathan. Um, again, full disclosure, not my favorite book. Um, but it is very important. And if you haven't read it in some other context, you should at least you know, remember the 30-second you know, version that I'm about to feed you right now. Um, Hobbes' his most famous line, I think I should have put this on your handout, but didn't. The life of man is nasty, brutish, and short. He was not an optimist, um, which is one of the reasons that you know, he's, he's bracketed a little bit as a kind of precursor to enlightenment, not really an enlightenment thinker. Um, but he is the beginning of the social contract theory that will dominate a lot of political philosophy during the enlightenment. And that's a theory about how do you get from the state of nature to the state of culture, which is sometimes referred to as civilization. So the idea that in understanding society, in understanding history, we're moving from the state of nature to the state of culture. The state of nature is how human beings were before there was such a thing as government and the organization of society. Now, as you might imagine, it's purely imaginary in the sense that we have no access to it. You know, what the state of man in the world was before culture, in some sense, is like precisely when you don't have access. You know, so all of these thinkers I'm now going to mention, at least briefly, imagine the state of nature in a different way. None of it can be proven because it's all how you imagine people lived before there was any such thing as social rules. 
Um, so for Hobbes, the state of nature is a state of war. Basically, we're all horrible, like hardwired to be horrible. Um, we're all like running around killing and raping one another all the time um, in a state of constant terror and constant violence, you know, until society comes in to control that. The state of nature for Hobbes was a state of war. Greed and self-interest were motivating everybody, the desire for power, the desire for wealth. Um, in order to end this nightmare of the state of nature being a state of war, everybody has to give up their natural rights, their freedom, to a leviathan, to some kind of ultimate ruler. Um, in order to protect themselves. The Leviathan is an absolute authority who gives men peace um, and security in exchange for the abdication of their freedom. So the legacy of Hobbes, I'm not going to go into Hobbes really anymore now, um, the legacy of Hobbes for enlightenment is the idea of a social contract, some kind of a deal, some kind of a contract, the passage from the state of nature to the state of culture, um, but also the idea that liberty and security are involved in a zero-sum situation. You know, if you want security, you give up liberty. There's no getting everything. You know, ultimately, the other Enlightenment thinkers are going to try to find a way to get everything. But the, le the legacy of a social contract theory goes back to Hobbes. Um, as we then move towards the Enlightenment version, we get John Locke, who says that, no, 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 the, he's right that the state of nature has to like, make a passage to the state of culture, but the state of nature for John Locke was not a state of war. It was a state of individual freedom. It was a state of natural equality. Um, the evolution from the state of nature to the state of culture was not some kind of once and for all radical giving up everything as blood flows all around in exchange for one's life, um, but rather there's a kind of gradual evolution. You know, people develop, they work the land, they acquire private property, they don't want other people to steal it, they decide there should be some kind of government, some kind of way to protect the property. Um, the rights of one person don't necessarily conflict with the rights of the other person, and in the end, people are able to think rationally and come to some more moderate agreement that would allow them to live together. Um, in John Locke's two treatises of government, he says that every individual in society possesses natural rights to equality, life, liberty, the pursuit of, the pursuit of freedom and happiness. Um, reason teaches everybody um, that being all equal and independent, they ought not to harm one another. Everyone being endowed with reason is competent to participate in choosing a government. Um, the legacy of Locke is is to accept the idea of a social contract, to say that the state of nature was not a state of war. It also wasn't a kind of paradise. It's more like at the very beginning as a kind of tabula rasa. But in order to protect certain rights, people need to come together and form governments. Those governments can only be based on the consent of the governed not on any kind of divine right of kings. The phrase consent of the governed goes back to Locke. 
So it's less, it's a social contract that is not unconditional. For Hobbes, you kind of give up your rights to Leviathan, that's it, it's over. Um, that's not the case for Locke. You can always kind of renegotiate if things aren't going well. The social contract's not unconditional. If rulers abuse their power, people have the right to replace them and to change the situation. So social contract is a key term. Consent of the governed is a key term. Um, and those are kind of precursors now to this new kind of philosopher um, that we're going to get especially centered in 18th century France, which will be called the, the philosophes. Um, and as you see from what's going on with the political philosophy, that it's a model of the philosopher that is engagé in the world that is not necessarily kind of bracketing these questions about real life for pure abstract questions about epistemology. So that the 18th century philosophes then that come after Locke, it's a model of a philosopher that is cosmopolitan, secular, humanist, um, that brings together theory and what we'll call praxis, which is just a fancy Greek word for action, engagement, practice, um, philosophically and theoretically inflected action. Um, there's a kind of cosmopolitan ethos. Um, for these guys, cosmopolitanism is like going from Geneva to Paris or from Paris to London. I mean, it's not actually like, it's not the, it's not the broader border crossing that we might today associate with cosmopolitanism, but for their time, um, it was relatively cosmopolitan. They're also going to have this notion, they're going to toy with this notion of, of reorienting God, and um, the, the key person here is Voltaire, reorienting God in something that they will call deism. So deism, you could think of as a kind of moderate liminal space between the Christian God and atheism or agnosticism. Let's say agnosticism, because atheism is not even kind of on the table right now. It's too radical. The idea of deism is that there's God. God is wonderful. God's great. God created the world. But, you know, then he kind of stepped aside. He endowed us with reason, and he's letting us do our thing. He's not like the puppeteer pulling all the strings. He endowed us with reason, and then we have the responsibility and the ability to do things. Um, what comes with this for Voltaire, who is one of these cosmopolitan humanist types, is that you kind of move the human being into the space occupied by God, and that you then argue, not for the abolition of religion per se, but for very broad tolerance, for the abolition of religious oppression, of religious absolutism. And he has a famous treatise on toleration, um, which was, it's still kind of inspiring, you know, even with the time that's passed, the radical way in which he insists on a kind of toleration, you know, that was to some extent before its time. Um, his slogan in my very bad French is écraser l'enfant, wipe out the infamy, wipe out the, the infamous thing, by which he means a kind of tyrannical version of, of Christianity, of religion, of superstition. His treatise on toleration in 1763 is a deistic treaty. It's against atheism as well, but it's in favor of broad religious toleration. Um, and he says, the fewer the dogmas, 
The fewer the disputes. The fewer disputes, the fewer miseries. If that is true, then I am wrong. Religion was instituted to make us happy in this life and in the other. But what must we do in order to be happy in the life to come? Be just. What must we do in order to be happy in this life, as far as the misery of our nature permits? Be indulgent. It would be the height of folly to pretend to improve all men to the point that they think in a uniform manner about metaphysics. It would be easier to subjugate the entire universe through force of arms than to subjugate the minds of a single village. It's a famous line. Um, it does not require great art or magnificently trained eloquence to prove that Christians should tolerate each other. I, however, he writes, of going further, I say that we should regard all men as our brothers. What? The Turk, my brother? The Chinese, my brother? The Jew, the Siam? Yes, without doubt. Are we not all children of the same father and creatures of the same God? And then he says, a bit sarcastically, one of these imperceptible beings says to another one of his neighbors in Arabia or South Africa, listen to me, because God of all these worlds has enlightened me. There are 900 million little ants like us on the earth, but my ant hole is the only one dear to God. All the other are cast off by him for eternity. Mine alone will be happy, and all the others will be eternally damned. This is his sarcastic ant analogy. And then he says, not only is it extremely cruel, to persecute in this brief life those who do not think the way we do. But I don't know whether it might be too presumptuous to declare their eternal damnation. It does not seem to me, it seems to me that it does not pertain to the atoms of the moment such as we are to anticipate the degrees of the creator. Um, so the treatise on toleration was very, very important moment in terms of breaking open this space. Um, and we'll come back to that in a couple moments with Kant. Um, the next person I want to mention, who in fact is going to play a key role in both enlightenment and romanticism, is Rousseau. Um, Rousseau is the first of many historical characters we will um, encounter who is, let's say, a deeply problematic human being. <laughs> Um, Charles Taylor, one of the great still-living philosophers, um, has a great quote in one of his books. He says, to say that Rousseau would be, was difficult to get on with would be the great understatement of the 18th century. Um, and let, let me just, as, as a footnote, say here, he's a good example of like a general a general sensibility and a general attitude I'm going to have towards these characters throughout this course, which is just that nobody gets canceled, you know, because you know, they were not a nice person. You can't cancel people and still teach history because that would you know, involve canceling a lot of history and then you wouldn't understand anything. But we also don't bracket. Bracket in the sense of pretend that their lives had nothing to do with their ideas and their ideas are pure and brilliant and therefore we should put their lives somewhere else. We're always in this messy, uncomfortable space where we are grappling with lunatics who played major historical roles and geniuses who horribly abused other people. We're always in that space. That's kind of the rule more than the exception. We just kind of have to inhabit it. You know, we can no long, we can neither cleanse these people's biography nor can we take them out of history. Like we just have to inhabit that, that tension. Um, so Rousseau, if you guys want to 
find out more about various slimy things Rousseau did. You can read his confessions, his autobiography. Um, he was um, he was kind of a teenage orphan. His mother died. His you know, um, father um, was forced to leave Geneva to avoid imprisonment. He was wandering. He gets various rich people to take him in. He has a benefactress. He becomes her lover. It's all very complicated. Um, eventually, he goes to Paris, where he meets the philosopher Diderot, and they work together on this big encyclopedia project. And the encyclopedia project is so important because because it is an attempt to actually kind of categorize, organize, and make accessible human knowledge. And so it's a kind of symbol and metaphor for the whole attitude of enlightenment, their encyclopedia argument. Um, Rousseau also plays an important role in social contract theory. He is diametrically opposed to Hobbes. His idea of the state of nature was that it was a state of virtue. Everything was beautiful and perfect before property came in and corrupted man and made him selfish and egoistic and arrogant and competitive. You know, so Rousseau is also kind of, we'll talk about this next time, a philosopher of nostalgia. Everything was wonderful before society comes in, but we can't go back. There's no way to go back. Um, the famous um, or discourse on the origins of inequality, he says, you will perhaps wish it were in your power to go back to the state of nature, but you can't. Society introduces vanity, corruption, competition, all these things. His idea of the social contract has to do with something that is, in some ways, kind of between Locke and Hobbes, in that there is a, a general will which is going to then be the source of authority. The general will is not exactly the Leviathan, and it's not exactly the consent of the governed. It's not the majority opinion. It's kind of like a, a sum of the differences of individual wills. Um, it's a kind of thing unto itself. It's not a mathematical calculation. Many people have tried to figure out exactly what it is. Nobody knows exactly what it is, but there's a general sense that this general will that is not actually, you know, a, a, a majority vote per se, you know, is a kind of conception of the whole that is going to motivate the terror after the French Revolution. Um, okay. Um, I know we don't have that much time yet, so I want to like I, I want I want to go on to Kant, um, who who is kind of one of my favorites. Um, so there was a famous essay contest in 1784 um, in the the Berlinische Monatschrift, the Berlin Monthly, and the question was Was ist Aufklärung? What is enlightenment? Um, the person who won first prize in their essay contest was the German-Jewish philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, um, who answered this question in essay, What is Enlightenment? One of the things he says there is, the words enlightenment, culture, and education are newcomers to our language. They're neologisms. And again, that sounds banal, but it's not. The idea that these are new words, enlightenment, culture, education, they have a new oomph to them. Um, Mendelssohn also says, I posit at all times the destiny of man as the measure and goal of all of our strivings and efforts, as a point on which we must set our eyes if we do not wish to lose our way. And this is a kind of declaration of the humanism of enlightenment. This turn from a focus on God to a focus on man. 
Moses Mendelssohn won first prize um, in this essay contest. Um, Kant comes in second. But in fact, his essay has been much more influential, relatively speaking, although they're both quite famous. Um, Kant gives an answer to what is enlightenment. Um, he, the answer being enlightenment is our exit from immaturity. Um, he comes up with the slogan, Sapera Auda, dare to know. We must have the courage to use our own reason, our own understanding. This will become the kind of the motto of a lot of Enlightenment thought. It's a rallying call. It's an exaltation of both our responsibility and our capacity to use our own reason. The idea, our responsibility, our obligation, our right, our aspiration should be to learn to think for ourselves, not to blindly submit to authority. Um, now, Kant was not a radical. I mean, he didn't feel like soldiers should all rebel and people should stop paying their taxes. And you'll see when you read that essay that there are all sorts of categories of things where, yes, you really have to pay your taxes, and yes, if you're a soldier, you can't just kind of go off and do your own thing. But there are all these realms in which the important thing is to be thinking for yourself. Don't let a priest tell you what to think. Don't let a book tell you what to think. You have to think for yourself. Um, Kant's Kant is going to be a thinker of both moral philosophy um, and epistemology. His epistemology is often associated very intensely with enlightenment and his moral philosophy with intensely with, um, uh, with romanticism. I want to say a little bit about his moral philosophy later, um, but let me first say a little bit about his epistemology. He kind of takes off from Descartes and he tries to figure out what can we actually understand about the world? You know, how do I know that this podium is here and it's not a projection of my consciousness? How do I get from inner to outer? You know, is there a world in and of itself or is it all a projection of my consciousness? This is a famous realism-idealism debate which we will keep coming back to. Um, and Kant is going to broker a radical compromise. He's going to say, like, yes, there's a real world. It has a mind-independent existence. There's a ding on zik. Don't worry if you don't get this now. I'm just kind of putting it in your subconscious. We'll keep coming back to it. But we don't have access to it because the world as it is in itself is processed through our consciousness in how we see the world. And he is going to enact what he calls a Copernican revolution. So remember, for Copernicus, you know, it's not that the sun went around the earth, but the earth went around the sun. So Kant is going to say, it's not that our minds conform to the world as it is unto itself, but that what we see, the world as it is unto itself, is going to have to conform to the extent to which our minds are capable of processing it. That's the Copernican turn. And again, don't worry if you don't get this now. I just want to kind of throw it out because Kant's epistemology will be critical for the regular course. Um, what you see in this essay on enlightenment is the legacy of enlightenment as a critical spirit towards authority. The sense that we have the right to use our reason. Um, this is all going to kind of come to a climax um, in July 1789 with the French Revolution and its great slogan, liberty, equality, fraternity. 
Um, that the key ideas of the French Revolution are going to be about reason, are going to be progress, social contract, government based not on divine right of kings, but on the consent of the governed. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen will embody this Enlightenment political philosophy, you know, which, will, which is effectively liberalism. This is the origins of liberalism as a political philosophy. August uh, 1789, the Assembly of France passes the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. The aim of every political association is the preservation of the natural and inalienable rights of man. Um, these rights are liberty, property, security, resistance to oppression. Liberty consists in the power to do whatever is not injurious to others. The law is the expression of the general will. You see Rousseau. No one can be arrested or detained except in cases determined by law. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. Declaration of the Rights of Man of the Citizen, 1789. That's still being discussed. The legacy of the French Revolution had been to transform human beings as being subjects of a monarch. And here we use subjects in a way that's in fact antithetical to the way the philosophers are using them could really like the property of a monarch subject to the will of the monarch and to create citizens. Citizen was a revolutionary word. It was another one of these neologisms. Citizens as people who are engaged and responsible, who are the creators of the government, you know, and not simply, you know, pawns or objects or possessions of, of the monarch. Um, a lot of the French Revolution was about the invention of ideology itself, the idea of these philosophical ideas being carried out in real life, real life being motivated by these radical ideas. Um, also, the revolutionaries' consciousness of the need to reorder the cosmos, the idea that we're going to, well, they literally tried to start the calendar over with year one. Um, you get a, a, a classic revolutionary problem that comes up that was formulated by Robespierre, which is how do you move from the old world to the new world when the creators of that new world are kind of always already contaminated because they've been formed by the old oppressive world. And the famous quote by Robespierre is, we have raised the temple of liberty with hands still withered by the cross of despotism. And it will eventually turn into terror um, in 1793 and 1794, um, which people will at some point start blaming on Rousseau's idea of the general will. If you want to commune with the terror, I can recommend the movie Danton um, by um, Andre Vida. The, it's a French film with a Polish director if you want to like, feel like you need to kind of get in touch with the terror of the French Revolution. Um, OK, this is also where liberalism comes from. Um, let me just say a couple words briefly about modernism, modernity, and modernization, just as a moment, just to kind of clarify those terms. So the Enlightenment kind of ushers in European modernity, which then culminates in 1789, and then European historians traditionally date modernity with 1789. When we talk about modernity, we're talking about a period of time. When we talk about modernization, we're talking about concrete changes, 
connected with modernity. Generally, technological advancement, industrialization, urbanization, people moving from the countryside to the cities, uh, you know, the creation of workers become capitalism, moving from an exchange economy to moving to, from a barter economy to a money-based economy, improvements in communication and transportation. So modernization tends to refer to kind of technical, concrete material changes, you know, connected to modernity. And then modernism is going to be an aesthetic response. So we're going to talk about modernism in, in literature, modernism in art, modernism in philosophy. So I just tell you that so that you don't get confused. They're not absolute distinctions, but that's the way the terms are, are generally used. Um, okay, let me see. I think I have a couple minutes left. Okay, I have three minutes left. Um, so let me, let me tell you a couple things in conclusion. Um, the legacy of enlightenment is optimism. The mood is very optimistic. It's very confident. Um, I, I know this is already a long time ago for, for you guys. For me, it seems very recently. When Obama was elected president in 2008, he comes onto the political stage as a kind of quintessential enlightenment figure. He believes in reason. He believes in knowledge. He believes that it can set us free. He believes that you can reason with people. I mean, I remember one of the first things he, he tried to do when he came into office, he said, okay, I know we all have very strong feelings on different sides of the abortion debate, but surely we could all agree that it's in everybody's interest to reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies that result in abortions. So let's all get together and talk about ways we can improve access to contraception and access um, access to sex education, and he believed that using reason and knowledge, you could bring people together and find solutions that would work for everybody. He wasn't really prepared for just ill will. I mean, he, he thought you could keep drawing on science, you could keep drawing on universities, you could keep drawing on knowledge. Uh, okay, so this idea that, that knowledge is good, knowledge is progressive, Knowledge will enable us to better understand and support our world. The classic literary character who embodies enlightenment is Settembrini, the organ grinder, um, in the accordion player in Thomas Mann's novel, uh, The Magic Mountain, which is a very long novel. You may want to read it um, over Christmas break. And he's kind of like the enlightenment who talks too much, as one of my colleagues described him. Um, he, says, he, he says things like, our Western heritage is reason, reason, analysis, action, progress. Humanity had sprung from the depths of fear, darkness, and hatred, but it was emerging. It was moving onward and upward toward a goal of fellow feeling and enlightenment of goodness and joyousness. And upon this path, the industrial arts were the vehicle conducive to the greatest progress. So he likes Set and Brainy. If you if you read Thomas Mann and commune with Set and Brainy, that is the spirit of enlightenment in a literary character. Um, what we will talk about next time is does enlightenment have a dark side? And the German poet Goethe would say of Moses Mendelssohn, that's all well and good, but he treats beauty the way entomologists treat butterflies. He catches the butterfly, pins it down, its color pales, it becomes a lifeless shell. Okay. All right, I will see you on Wednesday and we'll talk about the romantic rebellion against enlightenment.
Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.